In the summer of 2019, President Trump signed an executive order giving the federal government extraordinary power over tech transactions. It's called the Executive Order to Protect the Information and Communications Technology and Services Supply Chain. We'll use ICTS for short. The order gives the Commerce Secretary the power to either block or mitigate transactions in the ICT industry if they pose a threat to U.S. national security. Many assumed that it was intended to target Chinese companies. The worst fear is that every transaction with China could be prohibited or mitigated, and, and that contributes to the continuing concern that American companies will be considered unreliable partners in China, that their revenue will be threatened, that their partnerships will be threatened, uh, and that they won't be able to sustainably continue business in China without this overhang of risk to every single thing that they do. From the U.S.-China Business Council, I'm Aaron Slauson, and this is the China Business Review. My colleague Antonio Douglas covers the ICT and cybersecurity portfolio for USCBC. With the ascension of the Trump administration, there was definitely a shift in tone around relations with China. Specifically, there's a shift around how we relate to China on the technology front. If you look at what was happening at the time of the release of the executive order, I think the big thing that was in the news was Huawei. So Huawei is a huge uh, telecoms provider. And with any Chinese company, there is concern about their independence from the Chinese Communist Party. And so when you're allowing a company like that to sort of build into your critical telecommunications infrastructure, you can imagine there are a lot of concerns relating to espionage and backdoors. And, and of course, you know, the trade war is in full swing at that point in time. So it would be hard for any sort of technology-based supply chain executive order to come out without there being a China analysis or angle to it. Granted, there are other countries that have been caught in this, but by far the most prominent and most concerning has been China. Okay, just to make sure we're starting from the same place, what exactly is ICT? ICT stands for Information Communication Technology. So you're thinking of sort of the technology and infrastructure and equipment that goes into, I guess, day-to-day technology. So your computers, your cell phones. I think the easiest way to think about it is just like anything that has to touch on technology is ICT. How did the business community react when the executive order first dropped? A lot of concern about how broad the executive order is uh, and how vague its its powers uh, seem to be, and just concern about its practicality or lack thereof. There was a multi-association letter, and they, they asked for some pretty specific asks, basically provide mechanisms to limit the authority of the Secretary of Commerce, uh, define what a foreign adversary is, and define what a transaction meant, because it's like ICT transaction is, is broad. So like if they could provide any sort of guardrails to what an ICTS transaction means uh, and in hopes that they could also provide exclusions, then, then that would be extremely helpful. Uh, so I think initially, while there was concern, there was hope that there would be clarity that would allow companies to still be reassured that most of their transactions and businesses weren't actually covered. It's no secret that the Trump administration pursued a rather aggressive China policy, especially during its final few months in office. Just a day before Joe Biden's inauguration as the 46th president, the Commerce Department released an interim final rule on the executive order in response to industry's concerns. So what did this interim final rule do? It, it did actually address many of the concerns that were raised originally, specifically it defined foreign adversaries, you know, so now it's explicitly about China, um, for better or worse, but it also is inclusive of other adversaries such as Iran and North Korea. It defined a certain number of transactions. So, you know, you have six types of transactions that are now covered. Transactions that have to do with critical infrastructure or are sold to over a million uh, Americans or collect over a million Americans' sensitive personal information and provides a, a hard deadline 
deadline of 180 days uh, for the secretary to come up with a final determination. That still sounds like a lot of transactions. Yeah, yeah. So like, in fairness, both sides, like, yes, they address them, but the scoping, so to speak, still scopes in a huge number of potential transactions to the point where uh, it's not really that helpful. There are six specific transactions that have been mentioned. Uh, all of them are fairly broad. I think most significantly are transactions that have to do with critical infrastructure. So that's fairly reasonable. So this would be things that have to do with, you know, the electricity grid or, or, or transportation, you know, things that could really affect the United States' national security if they were to go down. But there are also more questionable ones, such as like uh, transactions that contain over a million American sensitive personal information. And the issue with these threshold-based transactions is that it's not always clear that volume is an inherent indicator of national security risk. Like simply because a company collects personal information, that doesn't necessarily mean that that information can be used to harm America's national security. Certainly, in conjunction with other information, it can in, in certain circumstances, but there's tons of information that we share online just in our day-to-day -day lives, what we put on the internet just voluntarily. Uh, and it's easy to imagine situations where a company collects information that we voluntarily give them on a scale that's covered by the IFR, but isn't really a national security risk. Same with the other scope of like uh, any ICTS transaction that is sold to over a million Americans within uh, a 12 month period. It's really easy to imagine that there are a number of items and things that we own, such as laptops and, and handset that are more likely sold to over a million Americans. And to its credit, the IFR does mention that things like cell phones aren't really covered, but it's easy to think that there are a number of issues with volume-based transactions that it doesn't truly capture natural security risk. And instead, it just expands the amount of money uh, that companies are going to have to spend on trying to mitigate their compliance risk to something as broad as the IFR. I think this is where companies start to realize that things aren't really getting better and that the steps taken to address their concerns were not enough. And, and that at this point, they think that hopefully with the ascension of the Biden administration, this can actually be jettisoned. And around the same time that the IFR is released, more information starts coming out about the solar winds hack. We have this huge attack on our uh, infrastructure uh, with solar winds uh, that's expected to be perpetuated by Russia, and we're still dealing with it uh, to this day. Uh, and so that definitely changes the tenor of this conversation significantly uh, to where now I think the expectation that this rule will be significantly moderated or curtailed uh, becomes more and more unreasonable. So given the magnitude and breadth of the different cybersecurity threats facing the United States, is the ICTS regime in its current form the only way to achieve its goal? If the goal of the IFR is interpreted to be giving the government the authority to prevent any transaction from harming the national security of the United States, then it achieves that well. If it is to achieve that goal without unnecessarily harming uh, the economic interests of the United States, and it fails because it doesn't provide enough guardrails or clarity to the foreign business community to sufficiently prevent them from having to treat every transaction that they do with China that's even tangentially related to ICT with just an inherent level of risk um, that at this point seems like unmitigatable because you don't, we still don't know what transactions are specifically being looked at by the Department of Commerce. And on top of that, since so much discretionary authority is given to the Secretary of Commerce to review a transaction, then it's also reasonable to think that as different administrations, you know, come into power, that the focus of the IFR can can potentially change or, or be abused, because that's, that's how much leeway uh, this IFR gives to uh, the federal government. 
is there a way under the current framework to salvage the important aspects of the ICTS regime in a way that industry would be more willing to accept? And that's a good question because it's really hard to figure out how to repair when it's so broad. Like the, the, the Department of Commerce released a regulatory impact assessment on the IFR, which essentially looks at how this rule may tangibly impact companies. And it said that compliance cost uh, could range from the hundreds of millions, to, uh, I think potentially billions of dollars. And that huge range is indicative of the fact that there is going to be a lot of knock-on effects. So let's say like widget company A is the one that's listed and, and is prohibited, then everybody who's tangentially related to any input or output of these widgets is going to be affected. So with the regime that broad, like how do you practically prepare? Because we don't have any case studies right now. The IFR itself does not provide any clear guidelines. So the only thing you can do is what scale back your ICT transactions with Chinese companies or just pray and hope that you're not the first one who gets called up for a review. It's really hard to find out what to practically do. All, all you know is that you are responsible for covering all of your ICT transactions under the potential potential compliance requirements of the ICTS, which, which seems really unfair uh, to companies. But uh, we are helping. We are organizing some events as an organization to get some experts to talk about this issue, and hopefully we'll have some clarity soon. Our understanding is currently that the Biden administration is focused on domestic priorities right now, and the China agenda isn't necessarily taking a back seat, but it's going to come more into focus once COVID is under control and everybody is kind of aligned both uh, at home and multilaterally on what the strategy is moving forward. So I, I really don't expect to see this come into play, at, at least in the near term, at least for the next few months. Uh, and on top of that, they're currently calling for comments on the licensing regime, which is supposed to supplement the IFR. So until that's in place, it's hard for me to imagine seeing significant motion. As always, you know, you can't predict anything in, in international affairs, but that would be my, my safest bet right now is that you're not going to see any major movement for the next three to six months. So I think at, at, at this point, I would say that the best thing companies can do right now is just hope that they're not the first case study that's going to be used to teach others how to avoid being caught by the IFR. And meanwhile, hope that someone else <laughs> is going to be the one that you can use as an example. The China Business Review Podcast is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council. You can learn more about what we do at uschina.org. Our music is by Tours. If you liked the episode, be sure to leave us a rating and review so that other interested people can find us. And we will be back soon. <laughs>